On this episode of Business Interrupted, it's not just learning the business in terms of single points of failure or what happens if something goes wrong or they, they lose a resource, but really kind of understand what industry does the organization operate in, what services and products does it deliver, and, and what are the benefits to the customers that it's delivering those products and services to, such that we kind of have an understanding and a more robust view of, well, if those services are impacted, then how does that affect customers? And also, what, what are alternate ways or means that we might deliver those products and services. Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellon Solutions, we're hearing from the world's resilience leaders and influencers as they get into specific situations and topics, providing insights, advice, lessons learned, and resources so you can be ready for when business is interrupted. I'm your host, Brian Zawada. So you want to make your organization more resilient and implement a business continuity strategy. But where do you even start? In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Armour to discuss and address misconceptions, maybe share feedback, and even debate a little about the pros and cons of two approaches to business continuity and resilience management, that being BCOS and Adaptive BC. Mark is the Senior Director of IT Governance, Risk, and Compliance at Brinks Incorporated. You've probably seen their armored trucks parked outside a local bank or business. And he's also the principal author and proponent of Adaptive BC. Adaptive Business Continuity, or Adaptive BC, is what Mark and others have labeled an alternative approach to standard continuity planning. It's based on the belief that some business continuity practices are ineffective. BC is comprised of 10 principles from a manifesto suggesting improvements to solve some core challenges that Mark observed. What I find compelling is that adaptive borrows from disciplines such as Agile, Lean, and Six Sigma. Now, if you're not familiar with BCOS, it stands for the Business Continuity Operating System, and it's the strategy we use at Castellon to help our clients achieve the right level of resilience. It's all about running your program like a business focusing less on methodology and more on building capability with the key innovations being better focus and better stakeholder engagement. BCOS has seven core attributes that we find common to the best resilience management programs. And typically when a program is experiencing challenges, those seven core attributes could be one of the core root causes of poor performance. During our conversation, we'll break down some of the finer points of each strategy, each principle, each attribute of both BCOS and adaptive, and give you insights on how each approach might benefit your organization. To start things off, Mark and I identified the most valuable elements of both adaptive BC and BCOS, but we also kind of took a twist. I pulled from adaptive BC and he pulled from BCOS things that we observed as most valuable. Needless to say, it led to some really interesting discussion. Take a listen. Mark, thanks again. I really appreciate you being here. I put together kind of my top three, what really resonated with me, what I really liked about Adaptive. I thought we could kind of go every other one. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll share the first, tell you what I, how I interpret it, what I, uh, what I took away from it. And you correct me if I got it wrong. And uh, I'll try to do the exact same thing. And for our listeners, we have not shared those top three lists uh, with each other in advance. So this will be very non-rehearsed. The first one I wrote down was practitioners and customers measure recovery capabilities. 
rather than either exclusively or focused on kind of key performance indicators like number of BIAs, number of plans, number of exercises. Why I put that as my number one was I think that's how a wide range of different stakeholders, including ourselves, should be thinking about it in terms of what can we prevent, but at the same time, what's our capability to actually recover and return to normal? So that's how I interpreted it. Did I come in the ballpark of right? I'd say pretty much spot on, right? Is is and that's that's one of the things that that we were hoping to promote or advance was this concept that we're focused on outcomes and business continuity. And well, how, how do we achieve our outcomes? It's based on the capabilities that exist and not simply the actions we take or the materials or the deliverables that we, that we develop, which hopefully get us to where we want to go, but aren't necessarily reflective of the capability that exists in the organization. So yeah. All right. That was my number one. Your turn. My number one, I was thinking you might even pick this as your, as your number one. I like that BCOS, a big part of it focuses on learning the business. Darn it. That's my number two. We're going to, we're going to be sure. Like, yeah, yeah, look I, I have out. a feeling there might be some commonality here. There might be. <laughs> so obviously learn the business is an adaptive business continuity principle. And not only does BCOS talk about learning the business, but from what I read, and you, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong or if there's anything in any other direction or dimension that you, you think of this from, but you talk about it in the same way in terms of it's not just learning the business in terms of single points of failure or what happens if something goes wrong or they, they lose a resource, but really kind of understand what industry does the organization operate in, what services and products do, does it deliver, and, and what are the benefits to the customers that it's delivering those products and services to, such that we kind of have an, have an understanding and a more robust view of, well, if those services are impacted, then how does that affect customers? And also what, what are alternate ways or means that we might deliver those products and services in some kind of unanticipated event or some kind of situation, I don't know, such as a global pandemic or something like that. So, and that's really what we try to advocate is, is it's not just about learning about, well, what happens if there's a failure? It's really kind of really deeply understanding the business and the organization itself. I picked up the same, learn the business. And by the way, I think you got it spot on in terms of what my intent was there. But what I wrote down was something else underneath here. I, I wrote down three things underneath it. Number one, I think when I read, when I read all of your materials, the words culture, the words operations, and then I put a word after that, I put down strategy. And what I meant by that was really understanding the organization's you know, overall organizational strategy, maybe it's go-to-market strategy, that might be uh, another set of words. I think that's really important because it helps provide a good understanding of context. What are we intending to do as an organization? And so, yeah, culture, operations, and strategy, I thought, you know, again, really resonated with me. The other thing I took away from it was learn the business in culture and operations for sure, it's good to know the details. And, you know, I, I oftentimes talk about like the digital model of the organization. In other words, something that would be like a reference for me in the event that there was a disruption, I could mine that and understand kind of the downstream implications or impacts or the like. And to me, that's a big part of learning the business. The other thing that I think is for me relatively new over the last few years, because I think there are many different solutions out there that have really matured, and that is pairing what we've learned about the business with 
different external sources of information that might be, some people call it threat and risk intelligence. I'll just call it generically, you know, an early warning system. And when you marry the two together, there's some really, really great value that can be had, especially if, you know, you get that early warning network and you can take action before things get really, really bad. What I expressed was what I was seeing from BCOS, which is like learn more than just simply dependencies and, and risks of failures and strategies just around loss of resources. And I, I guess what you conveyed was really what we are talking about, which is organizational culture. If we're going to operate in the organization, we want to speak the language and we really have to understand the culture of the organization that we, that we work in. Strategy is, is a, is a good one because I think if we're focused on organizational strategy, we're more forward looking, right? We're, we're no longer just doing a bunch of analysis and then kind of looking back on the data we collected. And instead we're looking at, well, what, what is the direction of the organization? Where is it headed? What are some new products and services or some new means that it's going to operate in? Because that's going to help us position ourselves and the work we do in preparedness, it really tended to be better prepared for those changes that are probably going to probably going to come along rather than coming along after the fact. All right. Well, since I kind of piggybacked up, you want to go to your number two? Sure, sure. So I don't know if it was necessarily specifically called out in the book, but it, it seemed like there wasn't a focus so much on the methodology. The, the methodology there, it's a good tool, but we don't necessarily have to be beholden to it. There's a multitude of different ways that we can operate. And even within the context of a specific methodology, there might be some aspects of that method that work to our benefit, but others which which may not be as, as beneficial to the work we do in the organization that we're operating in. So if that wasn't your intention, let me know. But I did seem to get a sense that that you were driving kind of an approach to business continuity that certainly was it accommodated the methodology, but the methodology wasn't the driver and there wasn't necessarily an expectation that we would follow the methodology verbatim. Yeah, I think you got it right. The process has to serve the organization. The organization doesn't serve the process. And in some cases, there's going to be times where we've really got to take a nimble approach to being able to go ahead and course correct, prioritize, and prioritization oftentimes will maybe run contrary to the process. We may have to pause it. We may have to improve it. We, there's going to be, a, there's always that learning curve. And uh, I'm going to piggyback off of something you said. I'm going to bring it up as an interpretation, but I believe the words used were customers direct the work. And I think that was sort of related to what I think you were just covering, which is that when we look at the organization, we've got to look at where are the biggest opportunities to be able to advance preparedness, resilience, or whatever word we want to use there, in that we've got to consult with a wide range of different stakeholders. Different people are going to have different perspectives. In some cases, it could be it could be somebody that is a manager of a key area of the organization that is essential to delivering products and services. It could be an executive. It could be it could be anybody. In some cases, that might even be outside the organization that we have to consult with. I would say I would almost almost expand it even even more. I think this almost this almost as you say kind of piggyback on the on the methodology, right? Where sometimes sometimes as practitioners we kind of want to drive the work and the priority of the work and the order in which it gets executed. But to me, I put our internal customers and any kind of anybody who's really kind of within that realm. So it's predominantly within the organization, but it could be others, as you say, could actually be customers to the organization itself. 
I put them firmly in the driver's seat, right? What's the priority for them um, of all of these actions that we can take to improve our level of preparedness? It really is. It really is that internal customer, whether it's an executive, whether it's a line level manager, even if sometimes a front level employee or a subject matter expert, they're the ones who can best say, you know what, this is where we're going to get the best bang for our buck. Or this is really kind of based maybe on the, as we talked about, the strategy of the organization, the future direction. There may be an executive or senior managers would be in the best position to say, you know what, given what we know is coming, this is the area that we should, that we should focus. So I, I kind of almost put responsibility for business continuity within the departments and the teams and the leaders that, that I work with. I'm really kind of an enabler of business continuity. So does that imply that business continuity or resilience, or again, whatever word we want to use, it's kind of a federated responsibility. And, 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 and oftentimes there's people central in the organization that kind of almost act as coach, consultant, advisor, than somebody that's really charged with doing the work. Exactly. So that, and that's, that's how I think of myself as, as you just described, a coach, an advisor. Are you familiar with somebody by the name of Ken Simpson? He also goes by the name Resilience Ninja. He's based down in Australia. I was going to say, I think I, that's, that's, that's what I was going to ask you. Is that, was that the nickname? Yeah, I am. Yep. He wrote an article several years back in which he mentions business continuity professionals as curators. And I kind of, I kind of like that, that definition, right? So we're, and this goes back to our discussion about capabilities, where really, as in my role, I'm just reflecting what the capabilities are in the organization back to the leaders and the managers within the organization so they kind of have an understanding. Ah, here's maybe where the gaps are. Here's where the improvement opportunities exist. So, again, I'm not making the decisions for them. I'm not telling them, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, or here's where we need to focus. Or even like these are gaps. It's really kind of up to those leaders to, to really kind of take the information that I'm providing and, and make better and more informed decisions about, about where to proceed and how to improve. All right. You got a number three? I do have a number three. BCUS, it almost starts off really kind of talking about not making the plan the thing. There's an interesting quote, uh, and I think, I think it was somebody else's quote that, that you used where uh, you say, the, the plan really exists as evidence that planning has taken place. To me, that's so very important, I think, to, uh, and, and you, the, the example at the start of the narrative in BCOS is your protagonist does a Google search of business continuity and what comes up with a ton of, of results that say business continuity plan. The result is anybody new to the profession, anybody outside of, bus outside of business continuity, we're given this impression that it's all about having a business continuity plan. And it's all about how good that business continuity plan and how comprehensive that plan is and how we can access it. And I think that's really all secondary to what we've already talked about, which is the culture of the organization, the capabilities within the organization, giving ownership and empowerment to the people within the organization to make the right decisions being able to understand, well, what are the risks? And as you mentioned, being able to, to identify when risks materialize or when there may be threats on the horizon. All of that is, is in my mind, forefront in the business continuity world. And just the plan itself is, is kind of an outcome of that and provides some value, but that shouldn't be the driver or the primary outcome of the work we do. Yeah, I think it even goes back to the first thing that I raised, which was um, of my top three was practitioners and customers measure recovery capabilities. That capability is the thing. The plan, it might serve as a good reference for things that, you know, you don't necessarily, you can't memorize or it's a, it's a good way to 
reinforce how to implement that capability, but it's not always necessary. If you've done a really good job of, of testing and exercising and practicing, whatever word you want to use, hopefully you've built some pretty good, strong competency amongst the people that are going to be charged with, with responding to the situation. And, and so the plan, yeah, it could be a safety blanket for some. It could be a reference for some, but it's not the be-all, end-all. And that's definitely what I intended. All right. Well, just in case that where there was going to be an overlap, I did have a fourth and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up. And this was not in a prioritized order, mind you prepare for effects, not causes. And I've never, ever been an advocate of, of threat or cause-based planning. I think there's categories of things that an organization can prepare for, like, for example, loss of dot, 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 but causes such as, again, specific threats it just always seems to me to mean that what about the, all the things that I never thought of and or I couldn't have predicted or I didn't have foresight on. Now, I know that there's going to be some of our listeners that might come back and say, well, there are some pretty specific causes or threats that may require a, a capability or a strategy that, you know, that's very specific, like, what do I do if a hurricane is coming or I have this public health event? Is there certain things I should do to prepare? I definitely understand. So there's kind of a, maybe there's a little middle ground for certain types of causes, but it resonated with me. I think that resonates for a lot of people. The challenge always, right, is you can come up with almost an infinite list of risks and threats and issues that are out there. Some of them are related. It depends on how deep you want to follow that rabbit hole, right? I mean, it could be a terrorism event, but then the consequences of that could be destruction of the facility. It could be fires. It could be destruction of the community. It could be direct impact to staff, loss of IT. How do we categorize kind of these broad threats? And then do we really want to, do we really want to dive deep into well, what are the peripheral threats that, that go along with that? There are some common threats out there for which we can we can put some very specific preparedness steps in, but that that doesn't mean that when we talk about preparing our organization that we need to kind of have a step by step set of procedures responding to that particular incident because in my mind it doesn't really matter if it's because of a hurricane or if it's because of an earthquake or a tornado or a flood the consequences are largely the same and if we paint ourselves too far into a corner to respond to just that event we're sometimes going to be in a worse position. And and then the other thing that I'll add on is just because we can predict an event doesn't mean we we can always predict and anticipate the consequences of that event. We can set us up ourselves up for failure if we think we can predict consequences. When we think about what pandemic planning looked like in 2019, it was largely about, well, how am I going to operate if I lose a certain percentage of my staff? What we didn't anticipate was, well, what are we going to do if most of my customers go away because we're in the entertainment or the travel industry? What are we going to do if, if we suddenly see a, a huge loss of staff because now people people don't want to come into the workplace and perhaps we're mandating that? So there's a whole host of other things around which we might have to make decisions on the fly. And if we, if we try too hard to predict what we may experience, again, we and if we prepare for that, then sometimes we're going to be caught off guard, caught off guard and maybe find ourselves less prepared than we'd like to be. I think that's a really good additional point. Mark, can I pivot for a moment? I want to I ask a couple questions of you because I think many of our listeners would benefit from your perspective on this. And there's been um, a lot of very positive and some perhaps not so positive reactions 
to adaptive, just like BCOS. And sometimes people read things like my book or maybe the, the adaptive manifesto and say, it's littered with kind of absolutes, words like all executives or RTO only. And they're like, wait a minute, that's not how I thought of it. So maybe I need to ignore it all. But I think that's the kind of the purpose of our conversation today, isn't it, is to kind of talk about how, you know, you borrow the things that, that resonate and that help and add value. You did bring up an interesting point, which, which, which might cause me to go back and, and look for these within the manifesto itself, which is, which is what are those absolutes? To a degree, we want to make a very strong point, maybe a very strong case for, for our approach. But as you say, some people can perhaps read quite a bit into that. There are a lot of people who, who look at adaptive business continuity and what we've promoted and say, well, this is kind of the way a lot of people already operate. And I think that may be true for some. I think a lot of people kind of maybe operate in kind of more of a hybrid operation, or hybrid environment where they're taking some stuff from adaptive, but then they're also kind of operating in a traditional manner. A lot of what went into my thinking around adaptive was I'm going to go back to the fir first example from BCOS, which is that Google search of business continuity and this this sense that most people who might be new to the profession or people outside the business company profession will get, which is it's all about the plan. And much of much of the adaptive business continuity manifesto and much of what I've advocated since is really kind of based on this perspective that I think people who aren't deeply immersed in business continuity have so that we can maybe set the right level of expectations so that those of us who are experienced, longstanding practitioners, it's not such of an uphill climb for most of us. No, I think that's great. One of the more contentious areas, I think, when, when maybe your more seasoned practitioners have looked at adaptive and said, wait a minute, I, I, I reject this because it says, don't do a BIA, don't do a risk assessment. I've always believed that there's probably some background assumptions regarding how you and, and David have thought about what a BIA is, or maybe it's outcomes. And so I'm not trying to give you a loaded question, but I thought your explanation or maybe your description of what is a BIA in your mind, or, you know, back when you wrote the manifesto back in, I think you said 2016, what, what were you seeing then? What was the BIA and risk assessment that you were advocating against? Because I think this could be really powerful and helpful for people that are, are looking at adaptive. Let me start this by saying my thinking has evolved a little bit in the, in the years since. I, I still don't advocate for performing a business impact assessment or a risk assessment. What I've said in the interim is that doesn't mean you shouldn't identify dependencies if there's some value in it for you within your business continuity program. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't set some level of expectations or as we've already said at the start, learn the business. My feeling is, well, we could do all those things. We don't necessarily have to do, wrap them in this business impact assessment, which now gets me to kind of the answer to your question, which is what am I talking about a business impact assessment? And to me, a business impact assessment is, it's a process that's supposed to help us identify really kind of several things within business continuity. And, and this, again, I understand this varies from program to program. For some programs, all of these things might be an outcome of a BIA. For some programs, it might just be a portion of this. But a large part of it is scoping the program, right? So we only scope our program around the stuff that we consider critical. Another part is prioritizing recovery steps. So what, what services am I going to recover or what resources supporting specific services am I going to recover first 
in the event of some kind of some kind of outage or disruption. And then the third is recovery objectives. So defining and from from what I see within business continuity is very time bound objectives, right? How quickly do we need to get this service up and running? How quickly do we need to restore this resource so our service can continue operating? You talked about how at the end of the day, the, you know, some people use the BIA as a process to understand the business or learn the business. And also perhaps to, uh, I think you use the word like, you know, some form of expectations. When I talk about a BIA, I, I always, I think about it as understand the business and to be able to set expectations or requirements or some form of that word or those words. And I think you, you brought up the point about the BCOS earlier about, you don't have to be holden to a process. It might, you might do certain things in a different place. So I kind of, I made an assumption when I've read adaptive that, you know, if you've got learned the business as something that just probably means you're doing that somewhere else, probably outside of the BIA. And that to some, some readers of adaptive, they might say, well, oh, okay, I get it. Maybe it's just, it's just in a different, a different process, a different box. And that, that's kind of what I heard from you right there. Yeah. And to me, learning the business isn't necessarily a process, right? It's, and it's, it's not necessarily, it might be the outcome of a BIA, but my concern is always, you know, for if we're very focused on the deliverables that we've defined for a BIA that learn the business might, might not, at least to the level that we've already kind of described and discussed early on, um, might not necessarily be, be an outcome of a BIA process. And again, all the, all these things we can do, we can learn the business, we can identify dependencies and a whole host of other, other things. But it doesn't have to be wrapped in a, in a business impact assessment process. What about the risk assessment? What's the definition of the risk assessment that you were most concerned about when originally kind of making that or advocating against that process? I'm kind of curious about that as well. That's an interesting one. And I think some people have, have interpreted me saying we should, we should omit the risk assessment within the business continuity life cycle or the business continuity work as me being against risk assessments or risk management in general. And and I, I'm very much a big advocate of risk management and proper risk management. Where I have concerns is going back to what we discussed, which is knowing that there are specific risks and threats out there doesn't necessarily mean we can predict what the consequences of those risks and those threats are. And I, I think too often we enter this risk assessment process, again, similar to the BIA, to try to help us fine-tune where we're going to focus within re with regards to our business company programs. And as we've kind of already alluded to, and I think even even said, sometimes that can, that can make us poorly prepared for the things that we don't see coming, right? The things that didn't make it into the risk register, or who knows, maybe we identified, but they were very low on the priority or very low on the likelihood scale. And again, the result is if that risk materializes, COVID-19 is, is an exceptional example, then we suddenly find ourselves in a position where we're poorly prepared to be able to respond and recover because we identified this very specific risk and a very specific set of, of processes and mitigation activities that we're going to undertake to help manage that threat only to find that, well, the pandemic portion of COVID-19 was just a very small aspect of what we had to contend with. And the much bigger and broader aspect was how we're going to deal with people working remote all of a sudden with a large part of our communities and our operations being shut down because of, because of decisions made by health authorities and, and governments um, and, and others, perhaps even our customers are driving changes that we have to, we now have to respond to. And to me, 
if if we're focused beforehand just on specific threats and risks, that again puts us perhaps in a in a in a poor position. The other thing that I'll mention, having spent the past several years really kind of learning and understanding the risk management discipline itself, there's there's similar discussions as adaptive and BCOS within the risk management profession. There's a whole there's a whole group of very forward thinking risk management professionals who are saying, you know, this very specific risk register and things like heat maps and matrices aren't really doing the job of helping us within the risk management profession. We we need to think in terms of uncertainty. We need to use better tools that are more more quantitative and less qualitative in nature. And to me, in, unless we kind of have that really thorough understanding of what the risk management function is and how best to operate in that space, then I, I personally think it's dangerous for us to operate in that context without that full understanding of really what risk management is. Well, Mark, for those that want to reach out to you or want to contact you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, there's a multitude of ways. Uh, email. My email is mnj, like Mark, Nancy, Julie, armor, A-R-M-O-U-R, at gmail.com. Feel free, to, feel free to email me. You can find me on LinkedIn, Mark Armour. Uh, if you search for me, I'm usually the, the first one that, that comes up. I'm not a golfer, so if another Mark Armour comes up by that nature, then that, that's probably not me. And we do have a website, adaptivebcp.org. There's an email link, and there's lots of resources on there as well. And then the last means you can follow me or reach out to me. I'm not as active, but you'll see me pop my head up every once in a while as Twitter. And that's uh, my handle there is at BC underscore revolution. Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Brian Zawada for this scenarios episode. To get more insights and resources, head over to castellonbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio for future podcast episodes.